Welcome to the Clear Admit MBA Admissions Podcast. I'm your host, Graham Richmond, and this special episode is a continuation of our very popular admissions director Q&A series. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome Eric Askins from the Haas School of Business at University of California, Berkeley. Eric's title is Executive Director of Full-Time Admissions, and he joined Haas back in 2018 as a Senior Associate, Dire- Associate Director of Admissions. He then took on the role of Executive Director in the fall of 2020, and Eric has actually spent more than a decade working in higher ed in roles ranging from enrollment management and admissions to fundraising. And prior to getting into the higher ed space, Eric worked in banking. He hails from Queens, New York, and has a degree in political science and sociology from Hunter College. Welcome, Eric. Graham, thanks so much for having me. Happy to be here. It's a total pleasure. Um, so we have a lot of questions to get into. Um, I'm, I'm just you know, really excited to learn more about Haas and the admissions process. But first, I know I gave you a little bit of an intro, but I'd love to just have you walk us through a little bit of your background and sort of the path that led you to this role at Haas. Sure. No, I'm happy to do that. I think when I open up and I talk a little bit about how I found myself in higher education, the journey actually starts when I was still in commercial banking. Uh, and And I'll be fully transparent here. I don't know if I would have been brave enough to leave that industry if it weren't for the uh, financial crisis in 2007. It really gave me an opportunity to take a pause, to decide what is it that I want to do? How do I want to uh, you know, find a career that's fulfilling, find something that actually drives me towards uh, making a change in the world? And I found an organization, uh, and this organization at the time was called uh, College Goal New York. I think it's called College Goal Sunday right now. Uh, and this organization had one mission, one purpose, to help first-generation students find their way into undergraduate institutions. Uh, so here I was, a, uh, a, a reformed banker, hoping to find a different pathway in life. Uh, and I discovered this organization that they took volunteers. And the goal was very, very simple. What's the most impact that you can have in one day that'll influence where a student ends up going, what their journey is going to be next. The organization looks at, um, so we were based in New York, the organization looks at schools that have majority free lunch. And they reach out to those schools and they offer a FAFSA, the uh, financial aid form for the federal uh, access to financial aid. That form, they offer a workshop, a free workshop to complete that form on a Sunday, hence the name College Goal Sunday. Uh, So as a volunteer, I had an opportunity to to join these folks and we went in and we found a uh, a majority free lunch school in New York City on a Sunday. And you sat in that computer lab and you had students lined up around the door, out out of the building sometimes, coming in. um, I don't know what a FAFSA is. I don't have a tax return form. I'm here with a parent. The parent doesn't speak English. How do I navigate this? Uh, a parent is receiving, you know, is being paid off books. What does that look like? How do I complete this form? And I just realized in that moment that there was so much that you can do to change the course of someone's journey with a simple, simple step, right? Just this one little thing that you can do mm-hmm. that uh, opens up a huge amount of opportunity. Now, we didn't do college counseling. That wasn't, I wasn't qualified or, <laughs> or someone who should be doing that. We didn't do anything other than how do I figure out, how do I read a tax return and how do I complete this form? But yet that simple step opens up a number of doors. 
Access to funding is one of the biggest things. Uh, guidance is not always available to folks. I'm a first-generation college student. I didn't have guidance there. I went to the library and found a Barron's book. Mm-hmm. You know, that was the uh, that was the journey for me. And so I was hooked. <laughs> it was the one single event, but it uh, absolutely changed the course of my career. Um, gave me the opportunity to look for things where I can do that, where I can be an advocate for a student, where I can potentially help people open up doors. It it was about access. Um, And I've pursued that uh, in all of my roles since. That's my guiding star. A role has to be able to accomplish that for me. Got it. So if the question is, how do I find my way to Haas? A couple of years doing this work, uh, I'm lucky enough to have an amazing uh, partner who had wonderful opportunity to come work out here in the West Coast. And I went looking for a mission-driven organization, an organization that had that mindset, that the, uh, the guiding factor aligned with my guiding factor. Uh, and I found it at UC Berkeley, and I found it at, at Haas. I found it at a business school of all places. Uh, I walked in the door, and um, I went through a very rigorous interview process where they asked me to unpack the defining leadership principles to actually interact with these principles that we, we now talk about, almost sort of as a marketing tagline or something along those lines, but they, they really wanted me to engage with those principles in my interview process. Hmm. Uh, and the more that they pushed on that, the more that I felt that this was the right place for me. Wow, that is a really interesting journey. And, and I think um, now I've, I've kind of, uh, it's almost preempted a little bit the next question, which is what do you like about your job? I'm sensing an answer there, but I would love to know, like, what is it that you like now that you're in the role, um, particularly in this executive director role, what, what do you like about it? And is there anything that you dislike? So what do I like about this job? I think the biggest thing is sort of feeding off that last answer. I love the opportunity to come into a meeting with our senior leadership and say, okay, what are, what are the goals that we need to accomplish? You know, let's align on those objectives. And then how do we get there? And the very first question that we need to answer is, well, how does that affect the student experience? How does that affect the applicant experience? How are we achieving our goals and our mission as an institution to educate amazing business leaders? Now, if we can't center those concepts in the execution of whatever objective we have, we need to do three things. We need to go back and we need to evaluate, is there something wrong with the execution? We need to go further back. Is there something wrong with the objective? And then we may even need to go to, well, is there another objective or another goal that we need to bring into this conversation? Hmm. And the fact that there's not just space for that, but that it is an intentional part of our decision-making process is something that I really love about the role that I'm in today, where I have that opportunity to think strategically about the work that we do. That makes sense. Yeah. What about something that you dislike? (laughs) Well, I will say the more that I spend doing that type of work, the less I spend uh, on -on one-on-one interactions with people pursuing business school. I, I love that work. The, the opportunity to be, uh, so we, we run advising sessions here ever since we've gone remote. Uh, Berkeley Haas runs 64 advising sessions a week uh, with members of our staff having one-on-one 15-minute long conversations with folks who are part of our application pool. Uh, I do not get to do that as often as I would like. Uh, and it's, I think it's, the, you know, it's, well, for one, it's definitely the reason that I started doing this work. Uh, 
And for two, I think the further you get away from that, the less opportunity there is to think about how, how does this land? What, what are people actually looking for? What information would be useful in the decision-making process? That makes sense too. I, um, I guess, you know, there is that balance of being, you know, kind of looking at the big picture, like you're saying, these meetings you're having with, um, you know, senior leadership at the institution, but then also being on the front lines. And um, I know we've had some fun on the front lines when you come and do, you know, events with, <laughs> with ClearAdmit and stuff, but, but yeah, I hear you. It's probably difficult to juggle all that because um, there's probably a lot of demands on your time. Um, I did, I did want to ask you, What's going on on campus? I mean, you're you're back on campus quite a bit now. I know you know all the schools pretty much are, um, you know, have students back and everything's getting back to normal to an extent. But is there anything that you know you want to kind of underline or call our attention to? Something that's going to be happening this academic year or that's already happening that you're excited about now that you're back, you know, in person a bit? Sure. Well, I think I'm I'm going to engage with the way that you frame that question, uh, and, and here's why. There's a lot of return to normal conversation and a, and a lot of going back to the way it was conversation. And I really don't think that that's what's happening here, Toss. Mm-hmm. I think we took this opportunity to think about, well, what's next? What, what did we learn from the pandemic in terms of technology? What did we learn in terms of instructional methods? What did we learn in terms of human resilience and where we're going next? And one of the biggest things that we learned over the pandemic is that the future is increasingly going to be distributed. That as a global business school, it's important for us to educate those folks who come through here to be prepared to be leaders in that type of environment. And so what did we take away from that? What are we doing? We've added a number of core courses. We've actually engaged our core coursework. I know core reform is something you may hear at a lot of business schools. It's something that we really... We pushed hard on this. There needed to be a change, and it couldn't wait for, you know, a bunch of different faculty reviews and a, a, a bunch of courses coming up. We, we needed to act quickly to adapt to the realities of the marketplace. And we also needed to engage with what was happening in the world. And so things I'm excited about that we've made changes to. They include three new core courses that we added into the core. We did move one of our core into the elective to make room for this. Uh, they included a business communications in diverse work environments. So what is that? That's a core course in which we engage with our student community. How do you work with people in diverse settings? How do you work with people from different backgrounds? Mm -hmm. How do you lead teams when your team is globally dispersed, when your team comes from a variety of different backgrounds and ethnicities, when your team comes from a number of different identities. Uh, we engage with topics like racial bias. We engage with topics like uh, how to deal with identity, um, equality of opportunity across organizations. The goal here was to take what the dialogue that was happening in the world and incorporate it into an instructional environment and really give our students the tools that they need to operate in this space in a lot of those different frames that we were seeing. You know, we also brought some data analytics and actually data-driven presentations. Uh, we understood that that was an important toolkit that our students needed to have to be the business leaders of the future. So those are some of the things that we changed within the full-time program. More broadly, uh, we launched a, a hybrid program for our working professionals, which is instruction that is remote coupled with on-campus instruction. 
And that we never would have been able to do if we hadn't spent the time, the effort, and the, really the resources. And it, we, put, uh, we put significant resources to bear to actually convert some smaller class classrooms into, you know, essentially instructional studios with, the tech, with technology that's there for our, our faculty to come in and teach, not to a Zoom, but standing in the method in which they choose to teach with 80 screens in the room and, you know, eight cameras that are adaptive and moving and a number of different microphones that allow our, our faculty to really interact. And we're putting that technology in play to be able to, you know, reach a whole group of working professionals because we understand that we can now do this work well. That's fascinating. I really think that's kind of the silver lining um, to all that has, you know, transpired over the past um, year plus, you know, and they always say, uh, what's the expression? Necessity is the mother of invention. So absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So I think, yeah, that's really fascinating. I think it's great to hear, you know, just I hadn't even thought about this idea of, you know, the professor wants to walk around and engage and, and be teaching instead of sitting at a desk in front of like two large screens. or something. <laughs> yeah. so, um, so I think it's great that you guys are, are, are doing that. And it yeah, makes a lot of sense. Um, one question that I wanted to ask you, and I've, I've been asking this of everyone we have as a guest on the show, is there have got to be some Haas stereotypes out there, or even just Berkeley stereotypes. I'd love for you to like try to debunk a stereotype that you think comes up a lot and that you want our listeners to know maybe isn't the case. <laughs> well, there's, there's, there's so many uh, <laughs> that are out there, both for Haas and for UC Berkeley more generally. Mm-hmm. Um, but let me, let me see if I can engage with one meaningfully for you here and for the listeners to this podcast. So there is a sense that UC Berkeley and the Haas School of Business is the perfect campus to come to to get into the technology sector or the perfect, cam- perfect campus to come to to get into entrepreneurship. You know, there's a number of different sort of uh, buckets or silos that, that folks will put this program into. And I think that that, uh, that sometimes is to our benefit, sometimes to our detriment. Um, a big example would be our friends across the Bay recently put out a, um, or a study that showed that if you wanted to get into entrepreneurship, if you were looking for which were the programs that were more likely to produce a unicorn, mm-hmm. right? Uh, a startup with a valuation of a billion. Um, you know, you had Stanford, you had Harvard, and then you had Berkeley Haas as number three. And we love that. That's, uh, you know, we'll, we'll happily dine out on, on, on that success. Um, that, that success comes from the hard work of our student community and the way in which our uh, entrepreneurship programs and our faculty and the, just the way this community comes together to support folks who, who want to build, who want to create. Mm-hmm. But if that puts out the message that we're a school that is just this one thing, it misses the opportunity of what we are as an institution, which is so many things. I love to say that when you look at our career outcomes, or if you look at sort of the backgrounds of the students coming in, what you see is a color wheel, right? You don't see three big segments. Right. You see lots of smaller segments and lots of different opportunities here. And I think that's one of the beauties of this place. Um, and then when you take those different segments and you realize that what we're doing is we're actually building in um, – sort of cross-functional training across all these pieces, right? An example that I might give is uh, Professor Nancy Wallace and the work she's doing with our real estate center. You know, real estate, right? Kind of a, a niche piece of our, of our overall offerings. But then you look at it a little bit closer and they've reworked some of their core courses to include sustainability, to open up a conversation about well, what does it mean 
to uh, to be in the real estate sector, but to have a sustainability mindset. You know, some of their core projects include unpacking what happens in in storm weather when just sort of sewers overflow, and what does that mean for communities and capital infrastructure. And uh, you know, it's those marrying of those pieces. And so, to get back to sort of the root of of my of the myth that I'm hoping to debunk is we aren't just one thing. We're all these different things. And the, the sort of the unique uh, sort of uh, pitch here is that we're these different things, but they overlap, right? It's, a, it's an institution where sustainability, innovation, inclusivity, their mindsets that appear in things like finance and consulting and sure entrepreneurship and, uh, you know, within the tech sector and a number of those other sectors as well. Mm-hmm. Does that uh, go part of the way towards answering your question? No, yeah, I think that's terrific. And I, what I was thinking about as you were kind of um, walking us through that is just that, you know, I, I feel like there's this um, desire in the applicant pool to silo things because it makes it easier, you know, when you're applying to be able to say, oh, that school's for this, this school's for that. But the reality is that when you talk about programs that are as well known and, you know, esteemed as, as Berkeley Haas, I mean, you're going to be finding that, you know, the, these programs are good at everything or it's at least many, many areas that they're our strengths. And so I thought it was interesting that you brought up real estate because that's something I think of too um, with, with Berkeley Haas, but that, you know, maybe does get a little lost in the shuffle of the, you know, the tech stuff or whatever. Yeah. But I, I think, yeah, it's a great, great point. And I'm glad that you um, have set out to debunk that because I, I think if people look at your placement reports and things, they'll see, you know, there's, a, as you said, it's sort of a color wheel, not, you know, just three, yeah. three big buckets or something. So um, that's terrific. Um, I know our listeners love this next question that I wanted to ask you, which is to just walk us through the life of an application, you know, people, you know, they press submit, um, they spent hours and hours pouring their heart and soul into the application and, you know, programs will tell them, well, you're going to hear from us on this date or, you know, these are the next steps, but they, I feel like there's still a little bit of, um, you know, it's a little bit of, uh, behind the curtain, you know, stuff like what happens to the file, you know, who reads it, how many times, like just walk us through like what happens and until someone gets, you know, the final response here. So Graham, I love this question. I'll tell you what it, it uh, brings to mind, and this is going to be a bit of an age check here. Uh, there is a uh, so there's a uh, a song on a on a children's cartoon called Schoolhouse Rock yes. about how a bill becomes a law, and it, it, I imagine that that sort of scroll of the application sort of moving through all the stages. Yeah. Um, I, I'm sorry, I don't have a song as a response, but just just know that visual, visualizing that's what I'm doing. Uh, but, I'm picturing. I am picturing that little cartoon bill because I watched that when I was a kid, Schoolhouse Rock. So I know exactly what you're talking about, <laughs> Graham. I think that might just be you and me. I, know. I think uh, that the, the target demo probably that look it up, folks. Yeah, YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> YouTube this one. It's uh, it's worth knowing. Yeah. Uh, but let's let's talk a little bit about how does an application go through its journey. Uh, so for us here, uh, once you hit submit, you've now put. You know, it's not just that finger pressing the button, right? It's your your heart and soul. It's all the essays that you wrote and rewrote. It's the, you know, the family members that you asked to reread your essays. And, you know, they didn't really want to. They did it because they like you, <laughs> right? There's all these steps. That, this is, this is, right. You carry the weight of you and you carry the weight of all the people that invested in you. And then you hit submit. Uh, so I will tell you the very first thing that I tell everybody who hits submit Take a breath. This is this is the moment you put a lot into it. Take a deep breath and honor that that work is well done, and that we're going to honor it as well. 
So what happens? How do we honor that? So step one for us, once you've hit submit, is we have a team on our on our group uh, that, that you know loosely defined as an admissions operations unit, but they also participate a lot in those advising sessions that I mentioned earlier. And the first pass is their pass. And the goal here is to ensure that everything that we need to make a decision exists in that application. That means they're gonna make sure that we've got the two essays that we're looking for, we have all the fields filled out, you said that you uploaded a resume, but sometimes things happen, things glitch, and you accidentally uploaded, you know, something, another PDF on your, on your desktop, things like that. <laughs> we'll make sure that we have the right information that we need. Uh, this includes ensuring that we've got the standardized testing or the, the TOEFL if you, uh, you know, studied abroad. And we just put all the pieces that we need for you to be an eligible applicant for review. Know that we build enough time into this process so that if there is something missing, this team can reach out to you and guide you to get exactly what we're looking for so that there's no concern. If you submitted the wrong doc, don't worry about it. We're going to get the right doc and we're going to get you into review with enough time so that you're not disadvantaged in any way through this process. You know, we build that in, in terms of that, that, that time frame that we have. So what happens once our team is confirmed that that application is complete and eligible? It's going to move forward in that process. And it's going to go to our first reader group. Now, this first reader group includes members of our admissions committee as well as former members of our admissions committee. In my first reader group, I actually have a few former directors of admission from other institutions as part of it that are, that are now part of our reader group. So we've got some really talented folks uh, who, are, who are reading applications for us. And they will do an initial review. Now, the way that we divide up that review process is we have uh, reviews that are either going to be done by an industry vertical or done by where you completed your undergraduate education. Uh, and why do we do those things? Because we want to make sure that there is a like with like comparison when it comes to your undergraduate performance as well as when it comes to your professional journey. So we have a sense of what professional progression looks like if you're in a finance vertical or a consulting vertical or an engineering vertical. Now, some of this, I often hear the question, well, what, what if I worked in a niche industry? Well, we're going to look at you with other people who maybe worked in that niche industry, but we're also going to look at your application through comparisons to what we have, because we do have a number of years worth of data, not just for applications to the business school, but through applications to UC Berkeley more broadly, where we have a wide variety of uh, top graduate programs. So we've got a data set that we can actually look into to give us some framework. And our first readers have access to that data set mm -hmm. so that they have an opportunity to look at, well, this is this undergraduate institution in this part of the globe. These are the averages. This is what this looks like. So it gives our team an opportunity to do that type of review on these applications. Now, what happens next is those applications will go to a second reader team. Now, this is going to be the core admissions committee. These are the folks that you meet on the road, or I guess not on the road these days, but that you might meet at a virtual event, so you might have <laughs> engaged with through an advising session. This team is that second reader group. Mm -hmm. And that responsibility is to take into account what the first reader uh, noted, to go through a list of competencies that we're looking for, now, we do not have the same groupings because we want to see a different grouping for those second readers. We want to see different comparison sets. 
Right? We don't ever want someone to be trapped in the, well, I don't look that great in that comparison set, so there's no way I'll get in. We've got lots of different ways that we can uh, interact with our students and really understand those applications a little bit better. So we'll go ahead and we'll do a secondary review. We'll do a complete review, so as complete as that first review. It's not an abbreviated review in any way. And we'll, again, complete a series of competencies on our assessment forms. We'll take those two reviews. If those two reviews are aligned, that we'd like to move forward and in invite one of these candidates to interview, we'll go ahead and we'll do that. If these two reviewers are aligned, that this candidate is not going to be a best fit for our program, and we should release them to explore other opportunities, we'll make that decision. There are cases where the two, the two readers are not aligned, mm. where they're very far off in that alignment. We will then invite those candidates to a third review, where another member of the team, usually at this point it's me or some of my senior leadership, to go ahead and review that candidate a third time to make sure that that sort of the dissonance between those first two readers, uh, can, we can resolve that with a third party coming in to kind of see what that candidate looks like. And the outcome from that third read is that we might release a candidate to go and find a best fit program, or we might then invite them to interview. Now, in most years, we have no quota on our interview process, so we'll invite between 25% and about 35% of the applicant pool to interview. Now, we admit closer to, you know, between 15 and 17%. So an invitation to an interview is a strong indication that we are excited with that candidate and we want to see more. We want to understand a little bit more about that candidate. But it is not a, uh, it's a by no means is it a, uh, an indicator that that's a, a, a positive outcome. So that we get that opportunity to, to get to know a little bit more. We hit this interview process. Now, we've created a couple of different pathways so one of the biggest things that we came away with understanding the, what the pandemic does in terms of people's access to technology and their ability to engage within others, it's not the same, right? And the, the recovery from the pandemic hasn't been the same either. So if you're invited to interview, you're going to be given a couple of different pathways. One of those is a pre-recorded interview pathway, which gives someone an opportunity to, you know, maybe they, they're uncomfortable engaging. Maybe the technology isn't great for them to be able to receive information over, over Zoom or something like that. Well, with a pre-recorded pro process, you're going to get the same set of questions from a question bank. You'll get those questions, and then we're gonna actually going to give you a period in time to prepare an answer. That's very different from a live interview where, you know, every second of quiet, every, every second of dead air feels like an eternity. Uh, folks jump right into answers and you know, maybe they have to back out of those answers or they have to figure out what the end of the sentence they just started is. Right. And so with these pre-recorded interviews, we give people for, for whom that's, you know, that's their, their challenge or that's their framework, that we give them an option to do a pre-recorded. But for those folks who want to have a live interaction, we also have that option. And that option is with either our uh, second-year students or members of our alumni community. And that's, that's applicant choice. That's not our, we don't force you into one pathway or the other. We give both of those as options for our applicants. Now, regardless of which format, the output of those interviews is an interview assessment form. And that interview assessment form, coupled with all the evaluations I've mentioned earlier, comes into our team and we conduct an admissions committee deliberation. And in that deliberation, every member of our admissions committee, there's about eight of us currently, we get together. Uh, we used to do this in a room 
uh, with a lot of snacks <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and a lot of coffee. Uh, these days we are doing it remotely and we've broken those sessions down and we've actually kind of liked the remote version. Um, and we will actually discuss every single application. Typically it's the person who's conducted that second read and identified that candidate to move forward to interview. That's going to play the role of advocate. That's going to say, this is the candidate. This is the strength areas of the candidate. These are some of the areas of growth. And it's the other members of the admissions committee that are going to put forward um, pointed questions. Well, what about this particular area of growth as it relates to some of these other candidates that we've already discussed? What about this particular area? You know, our responsibility in this admissions committee is threefold. First, we have to ensure that every candidate coming through has demonstrated appropriate academic readiness for the rigor of our core. The second thing is we need to ensure that every candidate that we are uh, sort of letting through this admissions process has articulated a clear plan for their next steps. Whether that plan is, um, you know, to explore a number of different things, whether that plan includes sort of a community that they want to serve, an impact that they want to have, a title that they want to hold, that they've chosen that destination, they've expressed that destination to us, and they've given us concrete pieces that we can look at, evidence in the application that supports that journey. Mm-hmm. And then the last thing is, how do they show up on campus? What have they articulated how they're going to show up as members of our community? And those are the three factors that we'll have as part of that admissions committee deliberation. And once that deliberation is complete, uh, we'll go back and we'll go ahead and we'll begin to sort of identify who's going to receive an offer. And then this is my absolute favorite part of this admissions process. We will divvy up those names and then we will call them. And we will try and make a phone call to every single person before our notification deadline. It doesn't always work out. Uh, sometimes we uh, can't reach people and the deadline is coming. Yeah. Uh, but those phone calls, and I will tell you, those phone calls are amazing on our end. And I've heard feedback. You know, we, we will come back and we'll say, oh, I, I got on the phone with somebody and they, were, they had to leave the gym and stand outside in the rain. Or they were driving across country and they found a Doubletree hotel that would give them the conference room for five minutes to return the call. You know, it's these stories and they, they stick. They stick with me as the person doing the calls. And uh, I, the way I hear them come back, they stick with the, with the candidates when they receive them. Absolutely. Yeah, that's, um, <laughs> I mean, we hear these stories. I, I think it's terrific. And I, I know, um, you know, from working in admissions myself many years ago that, yeah, it's one of the key, like, it's a really rewarding process on both sides, like you say. Um, I do want to, hats off to you because I feel like, I know a lot about how things work now um, at Haas, and I, I think you did a great job like sort of walking us through this. Um, I did have one question, which is that it's funny because a lot of programs have these you know, multiple reads, but if there's agreement after those first couple of reads and if the interview you know, came back great, the candidate sort of doesn't go to committee. It just goes you know, into this sort of you know, admit pile and maybe the director will look at it or something, but there won't be. You know, so, so some programs, it seems like they use the committee mostly to kind of get, you know, go back and forth on the candidates that are more on the margin, you know, in the middle of the pack kind of thing. Um, but it sounds, it's really interesting to me that you guys actually deliberate over each and every candidate that's going to make their way into the program, which that sounds really amazing and also time consuming. <laughs> oh, it, it absolutely is, Graham. But what I will tell you is that we're a program of about 300. Yeah. And we are currently facilities limited. 
So 300 is really going to be our cap for at least the until someone builds a new building. Right. <laughs> uh, and so when it comes to 300, we really want to talk about every single candidate. Uh, you know, we want to understand not just the candidate. We don't want to just discuss the candidates on the margin. We want to discuss the candidates who, who are the strongest ones as well to get a, a sense of who is this community going to be? Who... Who's going to be our next uh, leader of the Redwoods Hiking Club? Who's going to be our next uh, uh, VP of admissions or uh, our, our MBA association VP of diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging? Like who's, who's going to step up into those roles? And we often can identify who are the likely candidates for these roles through this conversation. Mm-hmm. And that, that is part of getting to know who's here. Right. Um, as an institution, and, and maybe this is in one of your questions down the road, we really interact with our current student body. They are an important part of our outreach. They're the way that we can allow people to understand what the authentic student experience is here. Um, through the pandemic, they were amazing. They came to campus. They did, you know, they used their phones to do to create student-led tours through our, <laughs> our essentially empty campus. Somebody who came to campus one of their first days, their partner happened to you know, do drone photography and they just sent us video. They're like, hey, look, this is some of the things that we've done. Wow. We, we can't build those relationships unless we get to know who's here. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the downside to that is if I tell people every time we have them on campus in orientation, you're going to meet people who think they know you <laughs> because we, it's not just one, the one person who read your file. It's the, the seven other people in the room who, you know, <laughs> deliberated and debated, well, what about that, that thing? What about the, the two years in the Peace Court? Is that going to, you know, is that going to be a thing? What does that mean for this person on campus? And then that person arrives on campus and we all know the story. Right. <laughs> uh, and, and, and they don't know why seven people are looking at them with a, with a smile. Yeah. <laughs> You're reminding me, um, one of your colleagues at, at another you know, leading MBA program was mentioning to me that she has this weird feeling of like, it's almost like a superpower that when people arrive on campus, she's kind of looking around and she sees a person and sees instantly, you know, the whole file. Like she just knows a lot about them. And sometimes it has to like, sort of doesn't want to like creep them out, but being like, Hey, I remember you, you know, drove that ice cream truck when you graduated from high school for a summer, you know, or something that like might, you know, the person be like, Oh yeah, I did share that. You know? So it's, um, it is like almost like a superpower that, you know, so much about all these candidates that are coming into your community. <laughs> um, I do want to move us along. Sure. Of course. Because now that, now that we've, you know, kind of have a good understanding of like how you go through the applications is there any advice that you would give about the application essays? You know, I think most people listening, you know, considering applying to Haas, they know they got to write the essays and they know that, you know, how it's, how their file is going to travel through this process. And so they're wondering probably what's the best approach. So any advice when it comes to the essay portion of the application? So I guess I, I'm going to give some counterintuitive response here. The, uh, the best advice to give is to not listen to so much advice. Uh, <laughs> And, and Graham, I'll tell you why. It, what happens is when you decide to go to business school, in that moment that you decide this is my next step, this is my next journey, you've done something. You've, you've, you've had a, a pivot moment. You've had an inflection point. You've decided this is valuable for this reason. That tends to be the best essay right there in that moment. Yeah. And from that point on, all you're going to get is advice on, well, here's five essays from people who got into the business programs that you want to get into. <laughs> and here's, 
here's 10 things to avoid or 10 things not to do. And you get in your head and you have instruction coming from left, right, and sideways. And, and so I, I guess the, the biggest piece of guidance that I'd give, and I'm sure you're going to get this from a lot of other people, is, you know, be authentic to that, that moment, that decision. And then the, you know, if I'm, if I'm able to give a, you know, a part two to that, yeah. it's curate, right? If you're telling a story, there's so many things that we're about, right? I, you know, I'll use myself as the example, right? I'm, um, I'm the child of, a, of an immigrant to this country. I'm a first generation college student. I, uh, I'm a father. I'm a, you know, I love to hike. You know, these are, these are the things that I am, right. you know, I pursue goals that, that matter to me. This that right there, I can write you an essay on each of those topics. But I, in 300 words for Berkeley Haas, or 600 words, if you combine both essays and think about them as one whole story, that's just not enough time to, to engage in all of those pieces. So it is a, a matter of, and this is the tough one, what do I leave on the cutting room floor? What part of who I am is not going to make it into this essay because I have to tell a, a clear story, a concise and, and directed answer that is rooted in that moment, that, that authentic reason why I'm pursuing business school. That's, the, that's where I think the real work comes in. Um, and I, I encourage people to, to write a couple different ones on each of those different pieces as opposed to trying to squeeze them all together and then figure out which one's the right one to move forward. Yeah, that's, I think that's tremendous advice. And you probably won't, you may not know this, but um, you know, Clear Admit as a website has all kinds of resources, right? You know, we always have information about business school. Um, but one thing that you would never find on clearadmit.com is a sample essay. I usually run in the other direction and I actually, I'm going to make some enemies here, but I don't really like the books that are out there that are, you know, sort of like, here's a hundred great essays that got people into business school. Because I find that if you're a candidate and you start reading those, invariably, and I'm not talking about plagiarism or anything, I'm just saying invariably your creative process is then corrupted by what you've read or, or influenced, um, even in ways that are, sub, you know, in the subconscious or something. So I, I could not agree more, you know, it doesn't make sense to read essays that worked for somebody else. Like it doesn't, um, it really doesn't. And so I, I always encourage people to, as you say, like think about why, why do you want to go to business school? So I think that's tremendous advice and I'm so glad <laughs> to hear you say it. Um, and yeah, I guess one thing I did want to ask you, I want to get into the nitty gritty a little bit on the essays. And I know, um, as you say, like everyone's unique and needs to take their own approach to an extent. Um, but I wanted to ask you a, a very specific question just about career goals. Um, you know, it, it's sort of interesting in that with, with your program, you don't really ask about long-term career plans in the written application. Mm -hmm. You have a short answer question that asks about what people want to do right after business school. But there isn't really a direct question around the very long term. And I just wondered, is that something that you guys tackle in an interview? Is it something you don't really bother with because it's too aspirational and too far down the road anyway, and any, you know, anything can happen? Uh, I just would love to know, like, yeah, what's, what's the sort of rationale behind that approach, which is different you know, from your peers? Sure. So, Graham, there was a dean here prior to my tenure, but the story resonates, and I'm going to use this as a way to enter into a response to this question. Okay. Uh, so this dean, Rich Lyons, who is uh, the predecessor to our current dean, Ann Harrison, he would ask at orientation for people to raise their hand if they were pivoting, either pivoting job function, pivoting job industry. He would just kind of get a gauge of the room. 
And there wasn't much of a follow-up to that. Just sort of, okay, I just want to get a gauge of who's in the room and how you might be changing. Mm-hmm. So two years later, when those folks are gearing up for graduation, Dean Lyons would come back in the room and he'd ask the same question. <laughs> so how many of you have pivoted? Pivoted from job industry, pivoted from job function. And there'd be a raise of hands. And then the hands would go down. And then he would ask, and how many of you were pivoted into a different industry or different job function than you thought you were two years ago when you raised your hand? <laughs> and there was a number of people who did that. And, and that's, I think, that's how I'm going to enter into this response. The reality is you're coming into business school to learn, to explore. So right now on this campus, uh, between our fall A and our fall B semesters, we run a week-long event called Career Week, where students who come here have the opportunity to explore different career opportunities, get an understanding of what kind of internships are out there, get uh, real-life feedback from alums or second-year students on the journeys that they took and how those internships or other career pursuits may have adjusted or altered. Because we're aware that that's part of this. Mm-hmm. Part of what you're coming to business school to do is to learn how the impact that you want to make, how you can activate that, whether or not it's in a startup, whether or not it's um, in a small organization, whether or not it's joining corporate social responsibility offices at large institutions. You know, you know that you've got something, mm-hmm. right? You know you want to you affect a community, uh, make a change, tackle a problem. There's clarity there. There tends to be or there should be clarity there in the application process. But the specific job role or specific job function, that's not always necessary for us to know as part of this whole process. Mm -hmm. Now, I do want to know that you have a plan, (laughs) which is why the short-term career goal matters. I want to know that you have a first step out the door. This is what I'm going to, this is what I think I'm going to do. But as you start to engage in that longer-term vision, my hope is that during your time with us, you're going to be exposed to a lot of different longer-term visions. You're going to be you're going to be the person sitting with the algorithm who's going to meet the person who's got the go-to-market strategy and something beautiful is going to come out of that. Uh, I, I certainly don't want folks to, to articulate a path that is, to, to use your words, aspirational, that maybe doesn't have all the, uh, all the pieces in place. Does, does that go towards answering this question? Yeah, no, that's terrific. Um, so I know we've talked a little bit about the interview process as we were going through, you know, the overall process um, with, with with reviews. But I did wonder. We didn't get into this aspect of it. And I wondered if you had any advice for people if they make it to that phase. How, like, any advice on how to prepare there? Because you know, we talked about how to prepare and write a great essay. But what about you know being ready for the interview, whether it's a video interview or you know or in a live type interview? So I think. When folks are getting prepared for interviews, I, I've heard the feedback that I've received is that they get concerned as to uh, someone's going to ask me a question I'm not going to know the answer to, mm-hmm. or someone's going to ask me for something that I, 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 I don't know how I would answer that, or your pre-recorded questions are going to introduce something completely new. And the types of questions we have, I guess the, they fall under the realm of behavioral questions. No one's going to ask you to do math. <laughs> that was going to give you a problem to solve. We are going to ask, and the format is very structured. We're going to ask you, give me an example of a, and we'll give the topic and then give me what you've learned from that example. So how would you prepare? And I imagine that the best way to prepare is to think about your own journey. 
Think about the narrative that you've already expressed to us in the application. You know, if you're going from one particular career to a different career and you are thinking about how the adjacent skills from that one career are going to affect that, that new career journey, be prepared for choosing examples that relate to that, that are, you know, okay, these are the examples of skills that I have. These are the examples of those leadership attributes. Another big, and this is a, a big giveaway for everybody who's thinking about our interviews, <laughs> look at our defining leadership principles. There's a chance that we are going to ask you something that frames around one of those. How you've uh, been a student always, how you have gone beyond yourself. What are the ways in which you've challenged the status quo? What are the ways in which you, uh, just any of those spaces, what are the ways in which you are confident uh, but without attitude or with humility? And if you've got examples that speak to that, that may not be the way that we ask the question, but the answer is likely to fit. Right. And so it's, for us, the format is simple. An example and what you learned from that example. Wow, that's terrific advice. Um, let's see, I wanted to ask you, I, I, we did touch on this a little bit, but I'd love to just hear a bit more about the interaction between the Berkeley Haas kind of community um, and all that's happening in the Bay Area. You know, people talk a lot about proximity to Silicon Valley, um, entrepreneurship. Just th there's a lot happening in the Bay Area. And so how do you guys um, engage with that? And you know, is there anything you wanted to share on that front? Sure. I can tell you that one of the very first uh, sessions that an incoming student will go into is a session with our student program office and our experience team about fear of missing out mm -hmm. uh, because it's real here. <laughs> There's just so much going on yeah. and so many different ways to connect that folks need to, again, this is part of that having a plan. You're going to need to say no to certain opportunities because there's so many. Right. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about what that is. So it has to do with the fact that so many of our amazing alumni are in the region. So they're coming through, they're coming to speak on campus, they're inviting our community to come to their professional environments, they're hosting sessions, they are connecting our community to the broader network around us. We supplement that through um, our experiential learning here, which uh, we call applied innovation, because we have to have a different name, of course, make it a little harder <laughs> for people to understand. But right. That's what applied innovation is. It's our experiential learning opportunities. We offer 21 of them most years. Wow. And those are primarily based in connections within the region. We've got some that are global and international. They're intentionally that way. But many of them are things like um, Lean Launchpad, right? Uh, developing and starting up your own business and engaging with our broader community and doing that. Clean tech to market. Things that sort of marry what this area is about, both technological innovation, but also sustainability, understanding that we are part of a broader ecosystem. And that's what's available just within our location. But I can't speak about our location without actually also speaking about our university. Right? So what does UC Berkeley have that I think is unique? You know, we might be a small program in relation to a lot of other programs, which we want to be. But we're plugged into a network that has top 10 graduate programs in law, in engineering, in public policy. When it comes to interaction with those communities, they exist in so many different ways. We've got an entrepreneurial hub that's being built right now, an actual physical space where entrepreneurial minds from our business school and our law school can interact. Our engineers can come in. We can share ideas, share space. That's part of location, right? That's part of who we are as an institution and the way that you can leverage the networks from those colleges as part of your own experience here. 
Got it. Yeah. That's, I mean, I, that was something I was thinking about too, is just, you know, there are a number of business schools that are fortunate to be kind of nestled within a larger university and pointing out all the Berkeley, you know, Berkeley as a whole receives so many accolades and, you know, there's just so many strengths. So that's great that that's, you know, all being kind of um, taken advantage of um, if you're a student. So um, I did want to shift gears a little bit and ask, you know, I, I've tried to ask everyone this when, when folks come on the show, but, you know, you have an accelerated access type um, program, right, for what, what we would often call like deferred enrollment. Someone can apply um, to join the MBA program, you know, when they're still in university and then, you know, go out and work and come back and to do the MBA. Do you have any advice for someone like who, who should be focusing on that path to an MBA? Because it's, you know, it's a really different path than the sort of traditional graduate from college, go work for a while and then decide, you know, to apply to business school when the, when the mood strikes, you know, so <laughs> who, who should be looking at this? I think folks that are looking at deferred enrollment programs are people with a interest in exploring the business universe, but want to marry it with something, right? Want to marry it with an exploration, something a little bit broader, maybe a little bit outside the box, right? If you're going to leave undergraduate and you're going to go do consulting for two to three years and then pursue business school, I don't know that you need a deferred enrollment program other than to have that security in your mind. But this is something that I already have in my pocket if I need to. <laughs> right, right. But let's say that you want to, uh, you know, you want this as the safety net so that you can do the outside the box. I'm going to actually go straight from undergraduate into a startup. I'm going to see if I can build something. And if I don't build it, I'm going to see if I can build something else. Mm -hmm. And what you learn from those failures is only going to develop and bring something unique and interesting into our program. If you're going to go directly into something engineering, um, I will tell you, we've run this program now for two years, and I've been incredibly excited at the types of people that we're meeting. We're meeting people who are like, so I'm going to go to NASA because I'm interested in space exploration. And mm -hmm. I want to, you know, I want to come back to business school because I think that, you know, SpaceX and Blue Origin and, you know, there's, there's opportunity here. But I want to I want to go and build some 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 tech, technical expertise first before I marry it to these things. I don't know that there's a NASA to business school pathway that's ever existed before, but certainly <laughs> with an, a deferred enrollment program, why not? Right. So who who am I? If if you're out there and you're on this line and you're thinking about a deferred enrollment program, whether Berkeley Haas is accelerated access or the number of other fantastic programs that are out there, I hope that we're reaching you with the notion that. You know, if you're a risk taker and you want to be a risk taker and you want to have this as your destination, give us an opportunity to get to know you. Got it. I'm, I'm, that, that's who I'm excited to hear from. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Um, I think that's, yeah. And that's something that's always appealed to me too, this idea that, you know, it didn't exist when I was going to business school, but this idea that, wow, you could, yeah, you could take some risks and do something a little different um, with your time between university and graduate school. Um, great advice. I have one more question. And then if you're willing to stick around, we have some kind of fun questions that we always like to do. But my last kind of serious question is just about COVID. And, you know, just want to understand what, what are things like right now? To what extent is everything sort of in person? Um, you know, how have things been going now that, you know, students are back on the grounds? Sure. So th those are great questions. Uh, so what I can tell you is one of the biggest things that we learned over the, the period in which we were forced to be quarantined and deliver remote instruction. So we built up something that we're calling instructional resilience here, 
which is the ability to adapt to the changes around us, whether they be uh, re resurgent uh, variants of the virus, whether they be you know, forest fires, whether they be a number of different things that do happen in the, in the world, that we would have a, a structure in place, this instructional resilience. And we've built this in so that we can quickly adapt. If anything should come up, that we can go to a, a remote instruction and bring it back to an in-person instruction as soon as the opportunity presents itself. And that type of flexibility is something that we think is essential for institutions towards the future. But with that in our back pocket, what we're doing is we're being hopeful. Mm -hmm. We know that we've now built a plan, we've built a strategy, to we can implement it as needed. So let's be at, at our most optimistic. And so what does that look like? Our student community is back on campus. Uh, we're still following the health guidelines that require masking for indoor spaces, and we're using that. Uh, we're lucky enough to live in the state of California where our outdoor spaces are still very usable at this time of year. Right. So we have a lot of activity that's happening in our outdoor spaces, a lot of uh, events that we, you know, you can serve food outside but not inside. So we're, we're you know, go out into the courtyard, pick up a meal, and then come inside for the lecture, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. We're, we're operating, we're using all of our spaces in creative ways. Uh, but we are fully in person. We plan to continue to be fully in person. We've got something in our back pocket should anything happen because you cannot guarantee the future. But we're prepared to be as in person. I know that part of that is about not just the student experience, but also people who want to get to know this campus. So what I can tell you is we built out a virtual campus visit module. We're glad that it exists. It includes uh, coffee chats one-on-one -on -one with our current students. It's not just sort of, you know, Let's do the virtual tour. We know that those can be uh, at varying degrees of quality. I'll put it that way. Um, but we've got mock classes and we've got other things that we really want to make a robust virtual experience. But we also intend to return to on-campus visits within the next calendar year. Now, right now, we focused on making sure that our campus and all of our campus spaces were available to our current student community because that's the priority. Making sure that the current students have access to those spaces uh, but as we move forward uh, and as we see uh, the changing guidelines and the changing dynamics, uh, we intend fully to reopen our campus visit experience so that people have an opportunity to explore the space and get a sense of it themselves. Yeah, and that's definitely, you know, that, that's the one piece that I think um, across the board. You know, in my discussion with your peers at other institutions, it's been, you know, things are great for current students. They've come back online. You know, everyone's hopeful. Um, but there's still the pause button on the kind of in-person class visits and um, campus visits and things. But um, yeah, like your peers, everyone's saying, but so sometime soon. So, you know, we'll, we'll stay tuned <laughs> on that front. Um, makes a lot of sense, obviously. Um, so I know you're probably, I know your time's really valuable, but if you have a, a minute, I want to run through, we have these lightning round real humans questions, which are designed for our listeners just to get to know you. Um, and we can do them kind of rapid fire. Um, so if you'll indulge us, um, let, let's roll with those. <laughs> sure. Go for it. Okay. So coffee or tea? Coffee. Absolutely coffee. Necessary to function each and every day. <laughs> okay. Uh, beach or mountain? So I'm in California, so I'm allowed to say both, right? Yeah, I guess you're right. Uh, this is the among the only states that you can... Uh, uh, what is it? Snowboard or ski and surf in the same day. And we're in the right place for it. Yeah. You're nestled in between mountains and, and, and shores. So that's a good, <laughs> good answer. Um, are you a morning person or a night owl? Oh, I'm absolutely a morning person. 
I love getting up with the sun if I can help it and uh, spend some time before the workday starts to just connect with nature, connect with my kids. Um, I have a whole life that happens before I start my work day. (laughs) I can't have that without the, without getting up early. Got it. Um, what is a a pet peeve that you have? I I guess the, the biggest pet peeve right now is, uh, getting people to feel comfortable enough to share their concerns. I think, um, I'm, I'm born and raised in New York. And what I love is sort of the blunt honesty that's not that's not always pleasant to hear, but you need to hear it. Um, and sometimes people can be a little polite with me. <laughs> you should come live in Paris. People are very direct about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it's like as you go east or something. There's something in the water as, as you go east. Um, okay, what about a guilty pleasure? Um, I love the movie Point Break. I recognize that it's not a, a high art in any real way, shape, or form. Right. But as soon as my kids were old enough to watch it, and I didn't think that they'd be offended by any of the content, I was like, you guys have to see this. Nobody likes it. My kids don't like it. I still think it's hilarious. I, I enjoy that movie to no end. Oh, that's excellent. Um, what about a favorite virtue in others? Uh, honesty. Okay. Absolutely. I don't think that needs more description. Okay. Uh, a happy place. Uh, I, I love Berkeley. I love the Bay Area. There is an opportunity here to find yourself on a piece of shoreline that no one else is around. It's something that uh, growing up on the East Coast, growing up in places where beach access was sometimes limited, you were always sharing the beach with a thousand others. Right, right. But there are places here where, you know, you, you walk along a hike or you, you know, you get there early, you get there late, where it's you, a shoreline, water, and no one else. Amazing. Yeah. Okay. Um, speaking of like sort of happy place, this is in the same theme. What's like a comfort food that you like? New York style pizza. <laughs> New York style pizza uh, folded. Yes. <laughs> eaten with hand, folded and eaten with your hands <laughs> while walking. Got it. All right. Um, what about a proudest moment that you had? I wanted to start by saying maybe when my my kids were born, but I actually think one of my proudest moments is watching my kids grow. My son just started high school uh, and he went and I was concerned that he was going to be nervous or uncomfortable. I gave him a lot of like tools and tips and tricks when he got there uh, and he came home and he was fine (laughs) and he didn't need any of my guidance or any of my advice. I would say right now that's my current proudest moment. Cool, great. Just when when the people that you create become their own people. Yeah, excellent. I'm not there yet with mine, but close. So I'm looking forward to this moment. <laughs> um, what about? Is there anything that you would change about how you were raised? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, you know, the, you know, they're they're not all good stories. Some of them are challenging, but every one of them contributed to who I am today. I'm very comfortable with who I am, so I, I can't see wanting to make a change. Yeah, that's fair. I've asked this and suddenly people are like, oh, I wonder if my mom or dad's going to be listening to this episode, you know, so that kind <laughs> of, um, all right. What about a superpower that you wish that you had? I'd love to be everywhere at once. I'd love to be able to be wherever I wanted and needed to be. I'd love to travel. Uh, one of the biggest challenges of the pandemic was the shelter in place and to be cooped up. If I could be in Paris for this conversation, Graham, I absolutely would be. Then I'd be in New York for a good meal, and then I'd be home for bed, right? Um, (laughs) if, If I could, I would.
Okay, so next question is, which part of the Haas admissions process would you most like to skip if you were applying today? <laughs> um, most like to skip? Ooh, that's, that's a difficult question to answer. Because I, I, I do see that every part of that admissions process is valuable. Mm-hmm. I guess I'll, I'll lean into the applicant experience and I'll say the waiting. <laughs> I'd like to skip the waiting. I'd like to be able to hit submit and know the answer right <laughs> yes. away. I know that that's not possible, but uh, certainly I know that that would relieve a lot of stress. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think some candidates today say, well, why isn't it like Amazon Prime? You know, I, <laughs> I put in my file and I get my result within 24 hours. <laughs> um, so, uh, all right. Uh, okay, so what is the best thing that you read, watched, or, or listened to recently? I just finished watching a, uh, a show on Hulu called Reservation Dogs, uh, which is uh, focused on the experience of four young adults, or I guess young kids really, living on a reservation in Oklahoma. Uh, and I, I love a good show that has both comedy and drama in it, but it also opened me to a world that I don't really know, that I haven't ever explored in history or in literature um, and so to find it in television first was interesting. And I like the sensibility of the creators. Uh, I think there's some amazing cast, all native indigenous cast that uh, some folks you recognize, some folks who are brand new. Uh, but it's a really fun show. I'd recommend it highly. Excellent. Yeah, I've not heard of this. So now I've got another. I love doing these interviews because I get to add to my list of things to explore. Um, so, you know, normally we would kind of end there. I did want to ask because it's baseball season and because I just sort of picked up on the fact that you were from Queens, I have to ask Mets, Yankees, or Giants <laughs> <laughs> or A's, I guess we could throw in the A's too, right? Cause you're, you're kind of, uh, do you, I mean, do you, I don't know if you like baseball, but I read you're from Queens. I was thinking maybe this person is, uh, well, maybe Eric is a Mets fan. <laughs> I wasn't sure. So Graham, you, you, you've got me right. I, I am a Mets fan, uh, born and raised <laughs> within sight of Shea Stadium, now City Field. I, uh, yeah. As a kid, I, I learned to ride a bike in the off-season in the parking lot of Shea Stadium. <laughs> I, uh, I rode the train past the neon baseball uh, batter swinging every time. I, got ex- I was around to be excited for the 86 Mets and to be excited but slightly disappointed for the 2000 Mets as well. Um, so yeah, I, uh, I am a Met fan. I am out here on the West coast now, so I am learning to like the A's, uh, <laughs> to get a sense of them. Yeah. You know, it's a different league, so I give myself permission. Yeah. Um, fair. <laughs> but, uh, but the home team is always the Mets. Got it. All right. I was just curious. That was my, uh, people who listen to the show know that I'm a bit of a baseball fan. So I just, I had to ask, um, <laughs> Um, but Eric, I really appreciate you making time to do all this today. I know that again, you guys are in the middle of you know reading season. This is you know prime time, so I really appreciate you making a few minutes to chat with with me and 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 with our listeners and you know give them all these insights. It's just been so educational for me, and I know that everyone tuning in is just going to really enjoy this. So oh, happy to, happy to, and uh, to all the listeners out there, know that uh, if you did want to reach out to the Berkeley Haas community, feel free to email us. Um, I'm going to try and be more of a participant in our advising sessions. So you might very well get me if you reach out. (laughs) Excellent. Um, All right, everyone. Well, stay tuned for more episodes of the Clear Admit MBA Admissions Podcast. And thanks again, Eric. Sure. Have a great day.